Uh, may our dear friends guess, may I begin uh, by recognizing the first occupants of this space and pay tribute to their continuing connection and to the contribution they will make in the future and honor and respect their elders present and past. And if you would forgive me beginning with our own ancient language, which would have been the language of some of the people who came here in the 19th century. Aware is Gunicorhe to Firkinohas Aram Ven Shalya Venusub Sabiaco, Econon Seher, Un Eva Quivnakansha, Anakto, Agas Gurmila Mahagia, Sultan Firkin Folcher, Adarashiv Rom Hain, Rem Hain, Miss Revma Van Kela Savin, Isid San Atoichastel Lam. Continuing in the other language, uh, English, may I thank you, Mayor, and thank all your dear friends for the warm welcome that you have given to Sabine and I and those travelling with me today. I'm very, very pleased to have been offered the invitation as President of Ireland to come and unveil a beautiful, poignant and profound artwork within your community. I take the opportunity of paying tribute indeed to the wonderful public art I have seen since Sabine and I arrived just a few days ago. This particular tribute is a great and generous tribute uh, to Irish people at home and abroad. You have made that tribute, I think, uh, recalling a very significant event, the Great Famine, and we very, very much appreciate it. I want to pay tribute to the City of Subiaco Council and indeed to yourself, uh, Madam Mayor, uh, for th this generous support of this memorial, which is, is such a fishing home, uh, has had such a fishing home uh, in the community of Subiaco, which, as you have said, is so closely associated since the end of the 19th century uh, uh, with, with the Irish people. I join with you in congratulating Fred Ray and all the members of the Western Australia Irish Famine Commemoration Committee for their vision and their unstinting resolve in bringing this project to fruition. There are so many people who will have assisted them, but your collective efforts and generosity have delivered a remarkable memorial in a remarkable location. And I have no doubt whatsoever that it will become an iconic landmark for Perth and its Irish community and your visitors. <clears throat> I want to pay tribute to uh, the, the sculptors, uh, Joan Walsh Smith and Charles Smith, who are artists that are very well known, not only in Western Australia, but internationally, originally from Waterford. You have accomplished a most beautiful and moving depiction of the sense of desolation and unfolded and that unfolded following the significant events that were the Great Irish Famine of 1845 to 1850. The image itself, I say this, and I want to convey my very best wishes to the sculptors, the image of a, a mother bent low by the crushing loss of her children, a people hollowed out by starvation and forced exile, Queena, a keening from the Irish word for weeping, so clearly and sensitively presented, is a metaphor perhaps for the collective trauma that the famine undoubtedly was for the Irish people, and the long shadow that it cast on successive generations scattered throughout the globe. The work also brings to mind the perhaps unresolved feelings of loss. Uh, the Irish word uh, is for exile is Joriocht, 
loss, grief, anger, and even guilt on occasion as is evidence in the Irish writing that followed of the survivors in Ireland, of those who fled and indeed all of their descendants, including some of those who are here with us today. Uh, we in Ireland, um, Wynton have struggled at times uh, to come to terms with this seismic event in our history. But over recent years, scholars and historians have combined a more complete exposition of the factors that contributed to the great calamity that was the Great Irish Famine. A calamity that led to so many deaths and so many dislocations, the scattering of the Irish in an involuntary sense across oceans. The famine was never merely an accident of nature, of course, nor can it be explained as merely some kind of historical mistake or even a series of mistakes. It certainly was not providence, as was claimed by some at the time. It occurred within the, within the philosophical biases of empire of the time and in an embedded atmosphere of conquest and conflict. It was allowed to unfold so as to be consistent with the prevailing mindset of economic theory of the time, of land ownership, an emerging desire to intensify agricultural production, a tendency that may have had its origin indeed in the clearances in the British Isles. These were the structural features which created the social vulnerability that was and remains famine. Dependency on a single source of food is obvious, but other factors also come into play. The Ireland of 1841 had a population of over 8 million people, but land ownership was largely concentrated in the hands of perhaps 8 to 10,000 landholders. Below them, 45% of the landholdings were under five acres, and in the western part of the country, the areas that would be most severely hit by famine, 75%, three out of four people, of those who scratched a living from the land, lived on holdings where they had them, insecure, and even if they were secure, with a valuation of less than four pounds. So thus, most of the population lived a precarious existence with little reserve or resilience against what was to come. The Act of Union itself had forced Ireland's industrial and commercial structure to slip into decay. Indeed, in the Industrial Revolution of Great Britain, perceived at the time as an inevitable progress, was something that was to be forced ahead. And we also can discern in this period and those attitudes the emergence of certain assumptions in the years leading up to the famine that came to dominate political and indeed moral thinking. The new citizen of the post-industrial revolution was to be thrifty, industrious and motivated primarily by individual welfare characteristics that were very different from those assumed to have been the characteristics of the Irish tenant or smallholder or labourer. And thus in the throes of the famine it was concluded that the giving of relief directly to those dying would constitute a moral hazard. It was important in the minds of those administrators and politicians who took decisions 
who sought to respond to the famine, that they continue the project of moral reform, even as the death toll soared. And thus, ultimately, over one million Irish people would die of hunger in a relatively short period of time, and related diseases associated with hunger, and a further two million would flee from their country. Meanwhile, preventing, avoiding, the, this was in the name of providing, of preventing the creation of a dependency as imperial elites saw it. It was a target that, in their view, that could not be allowed to slip. And thus, from, Gold, from our, our different ports in Ireland, in one nine days at Christmas time, 147,000 people would pile into the port of Liverpool and seek assistance. Many would hope to eventually cross the different oceans and find homes abroad. But it is also true in strict historical records that the reaction of official Ireland and Britain was complex as the famine unfolded. We must be aware of how the treatment of the Irish famine changed as one year succeeded another after 1847. The first identification of crop failure in 1845 was different to 1846 in terms of policy response. Any resilience in the existing structures of poverty relief was however soon perceived to be overwhelmed and thus the rhetoric as to providence, an act of providence, became a central feature of the discourse in 1847. And thus, you would have, I think, by 1848, in response to the, uh, the revolt of William Smith O'Brien, we have cartoons in the press presenting the Irish as ingrates, those who were ungrateful to those who were supposedly saving them. We also have the circulation of some manuscripts that suggested that the problem was that the Irish didn't understand the economic theory and that they could be brought to be educated to understand the requirements of providence. News of the emerging catastrophe in Ireland was slow to reach these shores. Word of the potato crop failure of 1845 reached Sydney in February 1846. But the extent and seriousness of the situation was not clearly reflected in media reports. And we must bear in mind the long distances driven the mail structure at the time. But by August of that year, the first of a series of relief fund meetings were held in Melbourne, quickly followed by Sydney and a number of other centres. And thus, by the end of 1846, over £4,600 had been raised and transmitted to the Catholic and Anglican Archbishops of Dublin for relief of the poor. It is notable that these sums were made up of thousands of small contributions from all sectors of Irish Australia and their friends. And in 1847-8, the following year, over 8,400 were similarly raised and transmitted. Now, this was a very significant achievement when one thinks about it, given the small size and the very modest means of the Irish community in Australia and its relative isolation from the unfolding events back in their homes. 
At that time, the Australian colonies hosted an Irish population of over 70,000. Unlike Britain, Canada or the United States, Australia did not witness the arrival of tens of thousands of emaciated women, men and children fleeing during the actual years of starvation. But between 1845 and 1848, it is estimated that about 14,000 Irish arrived here, mostly not direct victims of the famine, but those who feared they might become so. It was not until later, from 1848 onwards, that famine casualties started to arrive. They were in the form of several thousand girls and young women who volunteered to be relocated from Ireland's workhouses to a new life in the Australian colonies. Remember, they were in the workhouses in conditions that had by definition to have been worse than the worst conditions outside. And sometimes, known as they were as famine brides, these young women and girls had their passage assisted or funded totally through the Earl Grey and similar schemes. They're sometimes referred to as orphans, but many had a surviving parent who sent their child for survival. And it is sobering to think of the desperate situation that these girls faced, where the option of transportation to the other side of the world, of what was going to be permanent separation for most from their homes and surviving family, to a future and setting that they could scarcely comprehend, and to think that they had chosen that this was preferable to what was around them. And while the purpose of these schemes was largely to satisfy need for more females in the colony. For these women it presented an opportunity as they saw it to escape from the workhouses and the desolation of Ireland at that time. Some of the later transportations in the early 1850s came to Western Australia. In 1853 Elizabeth Carberry from Galway came to the Swan River colony on the ship the Palestine with her sister Mary and other young women from the Mount Bellew workhouse which is in County Galway in the west of Ireland. Limerick woman Bridget Mulqueen arrived on that on, in the same year on the Travancore and it is heartening to hear from me by me, I must say, as President of Ireland, I thank them that the communities in which they settled in Dardanup and Bunbury have been remembering them their lives and the contribution that they would go on to make following their traumatic departure from Ireland and arrival in Western Australia. I understand that memorial services were held for both women earlier this year with the assistance indeed of Fred Ray and the Western Australia Irish Famine Commemoration Committee. Remembering these women, their lives and their legacy is important Indeed, recognising the full profile of the experience of our people is necessary if we are to learn, to understand, even to forgive. Indeed, it is important too for us in Ireland that we in contemporary Ireland ask ourselves regularly the testing moral question. Can we of Irish extraction, borrowing from our own history, when faced as we are today, with the largest number of displaced people on the planet since the Second World War. What is to be our response? Is the plight of those risking everything today to cross continents and seas 
in search of refuge or a better life, so different from the choices that faced our own people to which I've been making reference. Today we have the capacity, globally, also to anticipate and prevent the threat of famine. We have the capacity to take measures to avoid it. And yet we almost have a bit we have almost a billion people living in conditions of extreme but avoidable hunger. <coughs> the moral principle, dear friends, remains the same. <coughs> we ask ourselves the question <coughs> must we adjust our populations of this planet to an abstracted economic ideology, be it laissez faire or neoliberalism? be it extreme statism, be it some form of fiscal adjustment, or should we rather use the best of our reason, our intellects, to craft economic and social models that can anticipate the needs and care for the peoples who share this fragile planet and make an appropriate, agreed moral response? Dear friends, captivating art, such as this magnificent sculpture, Uignus, should serve to remind us of these questions. This wonderful piece of art challenges us to remember and reflect. The artist's concept in designing it should also represent and highlight the resilience of the Irish people and by extension those who share their experience of the human condition in their words. Hope is not extinguished. It never is. Because the human spirit always soars over adversity in the end. The lives of Elizabeth Carberry and Bridget Mulqueen are a testament to the fact that people can and do emerge from the most horrendous situations, can lead good lives and make valuable contributions in their changed surroundings, their new societies. And our history tells us that from the depths of despair and devastation, positive consequences can emerge. The most notable, perhaps, is the contribution that many in the Irish diaspora made to the societies they helped shape in so many places around the world. Their shared story, whether, wherever they landed, be it in Liverpool, in Birmingham, or Boston, in Sydney, or in Subiaco, was a common striving for a better life. Many had drawn from the experience of the famine, the importance of education. They had pressed for the creation of a fairer society in their new homes, a more prosperous and secure future for what they saw with the coming generations. In many, it imbued a concern for their fellow citizens. This passion is still evident today in so many Irish communities around the world that are dealing with our diaspora, including here in Perth, where the work of organisations like the CLADA Association is so vital in supporting those members of the Irish community facing times of distress and difficulty. On Garthamore, the Great Famine is the source of so much of the Irish diaspora and was a catalyst for further immigration that continues right up to the present time. Today, Ireland and Australia are replete with opportunity and promise for our upcoming generations. And they have been, our, genera we, our people have been made welcome in the very different context of the terrible post-famine years. Those who arrived in their new destinations 
often from their Irishness, led to marginalization of stereotypical presentation of their cultural status as inferior, be it in terms of their language or behavior. It is from such experience that many overcame such prejudice to make outstanding contribution in their new homelands. And they did not forget their homeland or the challenges that were left for those who had been left behind. They assisted their relatives, sometimes providing funds for the passage to follow them, sometimes simply to assist those who stayed at home with remittances sent from abroad. Those emigrants' remittances not only helped other relatives to follow, they paid shop debts, they built churches, and for many of those who survived, they were a vital source of money for the purchase of food and clothes and the payment of the rent. The famine diaspora was also vital to Ireland's successive struggles to break from the shackles of empire and to forge its own future, something we have been celebrating. It is important, therefore, that we remember these things, those bonds of kinship and historic mutual support, that we recall the fragility of our daily existence and the perils of doctrinaire approaches that are blind to the vulnerabilities of human beings. Most usefully, we should let the memory of our experience inform our reaction to our fellow human beings facing similar threats today. Goramila Mahaki, Asat Ishtaklam, Asan Quire Yolchitam, Eveli Veranakoit Santa Saksha, Radata Firhovak Tatniwan the Fabal Nagaili Perth, Agsa Subiako, Ata Mintanagate Nagailge, Mintanaherin Ilyok. May I thank you for your patience in listening to my description of the famine and once again pay tribute to all those who honour Irish people alive today as much as Irish people of the past by putting this significant recall of some great people who fled from the direst circumstances from Ireland and who received a welcome in your country. Thank you for all of those coming in such circumstances that you continue and will continue to receive. Bye bye, Thank you.